fuck that up. Welcome to the Hangover Edition of Bring Receipts. This is the special content only for subscribers of our Patreon page. Well, except for this edition, which is also going to get posted on our podcast feed because we actually want to invite all of you who listen to us to subscribe. A link to our Patreon page is in the show notes, or you can just search Bring Receipts on the Patreon site. We have like three incredible levels. You can be a hater, a baller, or a shot caller. And each level comes with like different perks ranging from a shout out on an episode of Bring Receipts, a mug with our logo, and more content like what we're about to get into. So Brandy, on the Halloween special, we actually read excerpts from a chapter you wrote for your upcoming book, Black Skinhead. Now, you took to writing chapters for your book the way that Lil Wayne approached rapping from 2006 through 2008. It was just like nonstop content. So much so that your editors had to remind you that there are actual limits to the number of pages you can actually print for a book. So this is one of those chapters that's like not fully making it into the book. It's a chapter that revolves around a short story by Edgar Allan Poe, The Fall of the House of Usher. And you show us how this story might in fact actually be a metaphor for race in America. Now you're going to read from like excerpts from this chapter. uh, But before we get into it, I wanted to kind of ask you, like, what was the inspiration as you were writing this chapter? Yeah. So quick, funny story. So yes, I was really prolific on my word count. Um, and I just resubmitted my second draft and it's actually 15,000 words less than what I submitted. And it also has the, the intro and conclusion in a different chapter they wanted me to add. But like they had kind of cut it down way more than that. So when I first submitted it to them, they were like, did you just not accept any of the track changes? that we that we put in did you just not and then I had to be like really defensive about it but I am I I have it's so hard because the full um chapter of the book or I'm sorry the full book is called black skinhead reflections on blackness and our political future and that's a really big topic there's a lot to say about it it's a lot to cover it's got aspects of my personal story. So in writing this book, it was a journey to understand more about my family history. There were things that I learned about myself um, that I didn't know, that my dad didn't know, that even my grandmother didn't know. Um, And so like that's part of this chapter is like reconciling those things. I I was actually listening to something the other day where someone mentioned... um, the uh, getting DNA test and the phenomenon of that and their concern that they think that black people um, get DNA tests to kind of to show their whiteness. But I actually had to get um, DNA test um, specifically so that I could link to certain family members and certain things that were written in history and census records to confirm that these were like my family stories because so much of that has been lost. And so a lot of this chapter is about um, the ways in which the ways in which even when we lose so much of our history 
in our head, even though it may not be passed down. There's ways in which we feel it in our body, in our spirit, in our soul. And there's this story of America and the difference between the way it's constructed in this public imagination around nationalism and patriotism and the ways in which so many people who have played a part in building America are excluded from its story. And um, and so as I was writing it and as I was writing the whole book, I was really in a dark place um, a lot. I was like watching my dad die. We were in the middle of a pandemic, quarantine. There was a lot happening. So I was really tapped into feelings of isolation and gloom and a bit of gothicness, which we talked about um, in our Halloween episode. And so I was I think this was probably the chapter uh, one of the chapters where I was probably in the darkest place emotionally as I was writing it. And I think that comes through. It's such an interesting and timely thing to explore because, you know, we're in the middle of like a huge debate on what history belongs in the classroom, you know, with critical race mm-hmm. theory being this like beacon of a flashpoint for people to protest around because white people don't want to feel bad about their history, like their history and like our collective history and the collective history of this country. They don't want to feel bad, you know, day to day. They don't want to reconcile like that past. And so it's so front of mind right now. I think the myths that we buy into and the things that we ignore as part of like, as part of just shaping our reality today. And and I found it interesting. I think I saw that kind of darkness exploration within the chapter at moments when you were exploring kind of your family story and some of the long-held kind of, if not myths, at least understandings, like the idea of land ownership or just ownership in general, mm-hmm. um, the kind of little quirks and behaviors. There's like a story you'll get into of your father always, you know, looking out the window in the evenings mm-hmm. and what that's tied to, um, which mm-hmm. I found super fascinating. So can you tell us about any other kind of characters that show up in this chapter for you, whether they be folks from your own kind of personal history or just characters in the, you know, in history in general? I think there's a few things there. So before I get to that, I want to back up and say, when I went into writing this book, there were two stories that I wanted to tell. One of them kind of ends up in the book. The other one doesn't. But like going into the writing of this book, I thought I really understood clearly my two family histories on my father and my mother's side. So my mother... Her family has owned like hundreds of um, acres of land going back to the 1800s. And we've always known that. And so we have land in Tennessee. Like my mom has a regular sort of family reunion and uh, we go to Tennessee. We drink from like the family. Well, so there's all this pride in this like, you know, over century story of land ownership and striving and quote unquote black excellence and middle class success and all of these things that I think have shaped her and that I inherited from her. And then on my dad's side, uh, I thought I understood that they had never had any land. They had never had anything. They had grown up in um, abject poverty and that, you know, my dad kind of had to like sort of, you know, raise himself up despite all of these different odds. And what I learned in the course of writing the book is that there were actually um, a lot of quirks in both of those stories. I get into the quirks in my dad's story in the book and in this chapter. 
I don't get as much into them um, with my mom, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully I can explore that at another time. But yeah, in in this chapter, um, I'll talk about uh, myself and, and place myself in a time at working at um, Color of Change in, uh, you know, as Black Lives Matters movement part one is kind of like kicking off and you see all of these like police deaths um, are actually go like sort of you know, law enforcement murders taking place of Black people and placing us there. I'll introduce my dad and a little bit around um, my grandmother and, you know, stories that I I learned or understood, you know, through my mother after both of their deaths. And then um, also in this chapter, of course, we talk about the fall of the House of Usher. So talk a little bit about Poe and placing his writing in a certain context. I was thinking earlier today, um, usually when we talk about history, we talk about it very episodically. We don't necessarily put all the different episodes in this like time period. So I was thinking about the Chicago fire and how the Chicago fire that burned down the entire city happened like right after the Civil War. But because we don't learn about those things together, we don't contextualize what one thing has to do with the other. So I, I talk about Poe and contextualize him and what's happening in the context of his stories, and then talk a little bit about the story of the coming together of America and the Iroquois Confederacy. I'm excited for it. One one funny tidbit is I knew about the Chicago fires from like a, a Norteño banda group called banda machos that actually had a, a spanish version of like a ballad about the chicago fires um hey i don't know it's steven i know this is a little bit weird to cut myself off but i had to do it i'm actually saying something that's factually incorrect the banda machos song is about the saint valentine's day massacre where the Al Capone dudes dressed up as police officers and shot up their rivals. It actually had nothing to do with the Chicago fires. But I felt like I, I really had to say something here because in a few minutes, as you'll hear, I talk about how Bring Receipts is all about delivering facts to people. And this was just not true. So, you know, had to cut myself off. Back to the podcast. To the ground, you know, according to urban legend, a cow kicked over um, a lamp and it burned up the whole city. I think it was more complex than that. And so that's why it's actually called the second city for folks that didn't know. Facts. <laughs> Only come to bring receipts for facts. Sorry. All right, let's get into it. This is the chapter, The Stories We Die With. The Fall of the House of Usher tells the story of an unnamed narrator who receives a letter from his childhood friend, Roderick Usher, urging him to come for a visit. Roderick was feeling physically and emotionally ill and was in need in company. And like a good friend, the narrator came on horseback to tend to Roderick's needs. Upon arrival, the house seems ensconced in disease, evil, and gloom. Even the trees are decaying around it. Imagine that house from Emmanuel Horror, but way bigger and more medieval. And that's the vibe. The structure of the house seems solid, but the individual stones that make up the house are disintegrating. There's a crack from the roof to the ground in front of the building. The anonymous narrator is really not trying to fuck with this house. It's like a needle 
moving towards the skin. And he can anticipate that needle and the pain from it before he even gets off the horse. But he's a G, so he puts on his big boy pants and he keeps it moving, but his mind is thinking all these things as one does when they're entering a chamber of horrors. So Roderick has a sister, and she's dying. I imagine for the unnamed narrator, it was a lot to learn that your childhood friend has a sister, and then like five minutes later, you learn she's dying. Like, I feel like I would need a minute. As we learned in the last episode, Stephen, in fact, does have a sister and he kept that from me. And that was something I needed to work past. But that's okay. The unnamed narrator was, as the kids would say, a quote unquote real one. And he just rolled with punches. Roderick lives in this fear. Fear of the darkness that surrounds him in his creepy ass house. Fear of like all the things that are happening to him. Fear of his sister's death and what that will mean. And a lot of his fear is being channeled throughout this story mirrors the racial anxiety of what is happening in America at that time. Many modern scholars believe that Edgar Allan Poe, who was writing in the decades leading up to the Civil War, was channeling those white racial anxieties that were felt by many of his peers and maybe even himself into his writing. His short stories are read as metaphors, warning of the black monsters of the night, rising up to disrupt white purity. Oftentimes, Black and Native American characters, when they do appear in Poe's writing, are shown as crude, bloodthirsty savages. If they were not kept in line, his words seemed to hint, they would destroy the house of America. Edgar Allan Poe was born and raised in Virginia and spent a lot of his time in Maryland, where his family is from. He died in Baltimore. And his writings often were crafted both in time and geographic proximity to high-profile uprisings, like the Nat Turner Rebellion in 1831 and the 1841 revolt on the Creole ship when enslaved people traveling from Virginia to Louisiana overpowered the crew and sailed to the Bahamas, where they were granted asylum and freedom. It was also a prolific time for abolitionist literature. In addition to The Liberator, the most influential anti-slavery newspaper in the pre-Civil War era of the United States, you also had highly successful narratives in circulation by William W. Brown and Frederick Douglass, also uh, in Maryland at that time. And this had begun to spark anxiety and fear of the rise of Black power, not just in the region where Poe is, but across the country. Back to the story. We don't really know much about Roderick's sister. After all, the narrator didn't even know that Roderick had a sister until he got to the house. So the information is coming hard and fast at this point. The narrator sees her. She doesn't really have her own story, though. We find out later she's Roderick's twin. She appears but doesn't really acknowledge the narrator. As a reader, you're not even really sure if she's there or if she's a ghost. Roderick does the speaking and pathologizing for her. He says he doesn't want her to die, but he also seems more preoccupied with his own state of mind than the work of helping her to live. And no one knows what's wrong with her. So then this brought up and dies, allegedly and somewhat unceremoniously. The unnamed narrator is just like somewhere in the house being chill. And then Roderick rolls up and is like, yeah, my sister died. And we're going to need to, like, bury her in the wall where all my mini wall vaults are. And the narrator is like, 
cool, totally chill about it. Helps him do it. And if you read Poe's other work, like The Telltale Heart, then you basically know how the rest of this is going to go. He's very consistent in that way. So Roderick is like all melancholy and the unnamed narrator is still there. And he's like, well, I bought paints. Would that cheer you up? And Roderick's like, no, because my sister's dead. I just buried her in the wall. Then the narrative's like, well... Like, what if you played your guitar? And Roderick's like, maybe, but no, not really, because she's like my twin sister. She's just up in the wall, and, you know, I'm mourning, so I'm not in that upbeat of a mood. Fair enough. Then things start to really get crazy. Madeline comes back, and, like, she really did not like being stuffed in that wall. She goes ape shit on Roderick, and they die together. At this point, the narrator's just like, yo, I gotta go. So he bounces, but he watches as the house of Usher just cracks into two and crumbles in the ground. And it's just done. Poe's short story can be placed in the canon of his other work that in a roundabout way speaks to certain anxieties brewing amongst the white middle and upper class as the country was creeping closer to the Civil War. In the direct aftermath of the American Civil War, after the Confederacy's unconditional surrender to the Union, the U.S. was divided into competing visions for the country. And those visions have existed side by side, never truly in union, but often existing at odds. When I read The Fall of the House of Usher, I found myself thinking about America as the crumbling house and all of our attachments to it to its old history and its unfixed issues that are visible in the various bricks that make up who we are as a nation. Instead of further contextualizing what that would have meant during Poe's time, I'm going to go back and talk about the development of race in this country, and then I'm going to fast forward and talk about how this is all played out in the decades since Poe died mysteriously while getting white boy wasted in Baltimore. Around 1066, the Iroquois Confederacy is developed, also known as the League of Peace and Power, or the People of the Longhouse. This is a group of First Nations Native Americans that originally consisted of five nations or tribes. A sixth nation joined after the original Confederacy was formed. Between 1000 and 1400 AD, the Great Law of Peace was recorded through oral tradition, and its messages and teachings were written into the symbols and pictographs. The Constitution created a complex structure, allowing for the separation of powers, checks and balances, ratification, public opinion, and equality of all peoples. And if all this sounds familiar to you, it should. But at the time, this was all on the hush-hush. Then the trash Europeans arrived, starting in the 1400s and acted like that party guest that does not know how to be a civilized person and is showing their ass. Some of the different member nations were not really fucking with this, but others were just trying to make it work because the rude guests were here now. So, like, what are you going to do? Especially when they start bringing all their friends. This is, of course, an oversimplification. 
but I'm trying to get to the point quickly. So fast forward to the 1700s. The whites are here. They're trying to build something on top of the Iroquois Confederacy. And there's negotiations happening amongst the groups. Kana Satigo, a chief for the Onondaga Nation, was said to be a master of logical argument and adroit negotiation. In 1744, during those treaty negotiations, Kana Satigo, dismayed by the disorganization of the English colonists, suggested that maybe the colonists should unite on the model of the Iroquois Confederacy. And years later, white people were all like, thanks, by the way, here's some smallpox blankets for your trouble. At the time, colonists, including Benjamin Franklin, sat in on the treaty council meetings. They also participated and became quite knowledgeable in Native customs and in the intricacies of the Iroquois Confederacy. On June 11, 1776, while the question of independence was being debated, the visiting Iroquois chiefs were formally invited into the meeting hall of the Continental Congress. This formed the basis of what would become the United States Constitution. And as I think most of us know, white people were not nearly as gracious about it as they should have been. While this was all in various stages of coming together, in the 1600s and early 1700s, born of a set of slave codes crafted in Virginia, where Edgar Allan Poe is from, race as a categorization shifted the practice of indentured servitude into slavery. Just to be clear, in case you didn't know, race is a social construct and not a biological reality. Race is marked with an arbitrary purity condition for whiteness that is ideological and hierarchical. To say this another way, a white woman can give birth to a black child, but a black woman cannot ever give birth to a white child. Not because of appearance, but because of the way racial descent is defined. Bacon's Rebellion was an uprising in 1676 in the Virginia colony in North America, led by 29-year-old planter Nathaniel Bacon. It was the first rebellion in the American colonies in which discontented frontiersmen took part. A similar uprising in Maryland would take place later that year. About a thousand Virginians, including former indentured servants, poor whites, and poor blacks, rose up in arms against the rule of Virginia Governor William Berkeley. This, along with other rebellions, were happening across the country as it looked at that time. In the 1600s, America used a mostly indentured servitude system for labor, which was a combination of Africans, Native Americans, and poor Europeans. The ruling class was alarmed at how the different ethnic groups came together. While Africans and indigenous people were, in theory, easier to identify and be mistrustful of, poor Europeans could more easily assimilate and infiltrate ranks. Indentured servants were not cool with all the sleight of hand their bosses were doing to avoid letting them explore other employment and entrepreneurial opportunities. And dividing the disillusioned working class against itself was a clear way to stamp out a growing number of multi-ethnic populist rebellions by creating a caste system based on characteristics that presumably could be detected by the eye. Those of European origins that had once been endangered servants of low regard almost overnight became guardians and enforcers of a new set of laws that granted them a fast-track global entry pass into higher public status. Many of those people would also go on to become what today we would call police officers due to some rebranding. 
but back then were known as slave catchers. And the newly branded Black people were screwed, for lack of a better term. And the Indigenous people were like, why the fuck are y'all even here? Like, seriously, who invited you? And white people were all like, We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. So in the beginning of this chapter, I introduced Roderick and Madeline in the House of Fall of Usher as twins. And black and white as racial categorizations are twin identities born at the same time. Indigenous Americans, even when forced into one census category, maintain distinct identities, cultures, and tribes that hold their own history and set of preserved oral traditions and norms. For people who arrived in America after race became a category, even if they gained or pushed into one race or another, they maintain their cultural norms, identities, and country identification. They have a before America story. Even when they have an American census categorization tacked on at the end. But white and whiteness as a social construct is a cabal that has broadened its scope over time to swallow up Germans, Greeks, Irish, Italians, and Spaniards, and on in order to maintain structural barriers that keep power concentrated in the hands of a few. So the story of white is entrenched in the house that America built. On the flip side of that, black is a construct that, as a cultural identity, was forged after the Civil War through the gained power of black-owned press and the freedoms of physical movement that allowed for culture to travel and a shared story to be formed. In the fall of the House of Usher, Roderick is white, He's able to talk and tell his story to the world. He's able to get his unnamed friend to bury dead bodies in the walls of the House of America. But he's also haunted. He's living in the fear that maybe those dead bodies and the secrets they hold cannot be contained in the walls of the house. Maybe they'll break free. Madeline, I see, is black. She exists and roams the halls of America. She's visible but she's presumed voiceless, or at least she's not able to tell her own story to the unnamed narrator. That means that Roderick, as a white person, becomes the default narrator of Madeline as a black person's history. And he's able to tell her story however he chooses. The unnamed narrator is left to just accept Roderick's story as the truth. And both black and white are attached to each other. They feed off of each other and they ultimately their fates are tied to each other. And as mutual resentment flows between them, Roderick lives in constant fear of what will happen if Madeline breaks through the walls he's tried to bury her in. I think this mirrors the story of America post-Civil War and the battle to control the narrative of who owns and runs America. final acts as president of the United States, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day no less, Donald Trump released a report meant to wipe away academic and societal efforts to reconcile a nation's history of violence, displacement, and racial and ethnic trauma. Specifically, it was meant to be an attack on the Pulitzer Prize-winning 1619 Project, work led by Nicole Hannah-Jones. It was part of a series of attacks on the education system 
that in 2020 had culminated in Trump signing an executive order banning, quote unquote, critical race theory, both in terminology and as a framework that examines society and culture as it relates to race, law, and power in the United States. Critical race theory, ex-President Trump and his supporters theorized, was, quote, divisive un-American propaganda, end quote, which is low-key weird since race as a social construct was created by pilgrims turned enslavers and their enablers turned white people. But okay. In June 16, 1858, when future President Abraham Lincoln accepted the Illinois Republican Party's nomination as that state's U.S. senator, he gave an address that laid out a broad vision for America, uttering the phrase, a house divided against itself cannot stand. What Lincoln meant, as evidenced by the rest of his speech, is that freedom as an aspiration cannot coexist alongside the institution of slavery. We are either land for the free or a home for the slavers and the enslaved, but we cannot be both of those things or we will fall apart. Therefore, Lincoln concluded, the Confederacy and the institution of slavery had to be dismantled unequivocally. But the question of what that meant for race and the social and economic caste system on which the institution of slavery was built would never be resolved. Race, like a levy made of the strongest man-made materials on earth, continues to serve as a barrier to aligning struggles in the drive to embody the beloved community that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others have spoken about. That is the house we live in house that is full of cracks and inconsistencies, one that stands on a firm foundation but holds the decay of erased stories and unresolved trauma, and we are all connected to that story, like the ushers were connected to their house. In the 1920s, when education reform became the crossroads of conflict, a tension that has persisted ever since, compulsory public education, an idea promoted by the Ku Klux Klan, sought to require all school-aged children to attend public schools with a specific type of curriculum that was geared towards, quote-unquote, Americanizing all, quote-unquote, foreigners. The intent was in part to prevent Catholics and immigrant groups like the Chinese from establishing their own schools and curriculum in non-English languages that would pose a danger to the established mythology and romanticization, not just of America, but also the failed Confederacy. Pro-Confederate and pro-Union visions have clashed on the pages of school books for decades, each attempting to lay claim to a history that minimizes the role and story of other groups. Though compulsory public education is most closely tied to the history of Oregon, some version of it made its way into several key states. KKK members ran for and were elected and appointed to school boards across the country. Their goal was to mark their territory and embed the idea of America first as both a call for assimilation and a demonstration of white power. This took the form of naming schools, even in Union strongholds, after Confederate leaders and downplaying or even justifying acts of historical violence. It was a troubling reconciliation of a pro-Union and pro-Confederate vision of America cherry-picked memories of those from the other groups 
were appropriately sanitized and carefully placed throughout the curriculum to bolster the story of American exceptionalism and presumably curb claims of excessive whitewashing. Cut to today, where 52% of Americans do not know that slavery was the primary reason for the Civil War. Few people know that 32% of white families in the pre-Civil War South owned enslaved people, and few people know that Lincoln's decision to make the official call to end slavery was more about protecting the Union. A house divided can never stand. It was a pragmatic position, more than it was a moral one. Lincoln himself had said that if he could preserve the Union without freeing a slave, he would have, but it simply wasn't possible. Though signs indicated that towards the end of his life, he understood the moral implications, the quote, Lincoln as the original anti-racist, end quote, mythology also prevents our ability as a nation to reconcile some uncomfortable truths. This is a history that many of us know in various pieces. These stories are passed down to us in various ways and shape our identity and how we interact and see ourselves in the House of America. But like the fall of the House of Usher, Ghosts swirl around us, eventually making themselves known to us and the poisoned house we live in. It continues to breed angst and anxiety as the cracks creep up the walls. Without interruption, each generation continues to breathe in the poison. What if I told you that none of us are born with a clean slate? that your life doesn't start from birth, or even from conception, but several generations in the past. Would you think I was on some mystical woo-woo stuff? Well, I'm not. I'm talking about science, specifically epigenetics. Epigenetics is an area of psychology. Mark Wollen, psychologist and author of the award-winning book, It Didn't Start With You, is one of the world's leading experts in the field of inherited family trauma. In one of the interviews I listened to with him, he told a story of what led him into this work. He was doing therapy with a woman he calls Sarah, a young 20-something-year-old woman who cut herself deeply. He had dealt with patients before that cut themselves, but Sarah was different. Most people who cut themselves do artificial wounds that could heal. But Sarah cut herself so deeply that she was killing herself. She had to go to the hospital, and her family had tried everything to get her to stop she couldn't. When Woolen began to ask her more why she did it, she said, I don't deserve to live. Sarah didn't have any immediate trauma. She'd grown up in a happy home with two present parents. She was young and she had a lot to live for by the world's standards. So it didn't make obvious sense why she would do this. So Dr. Woolen decided to drill deeper. He asked her about her grandparents. And that's when the story started to emerge. On her father's side, his mother had been an alcoholic. When Sarah's father was young, there was a bad car accident. His mother had crashed a car carrying her and her husband, Sarah's grandfather. The car crash had been so horrible, it killed her grandfather in the passenger seat. But her grandmother had lived. Her father hadn't really talked about it much. It was too hard to talk about Sarah's grandfather and how he died at the hands of grandmother. But without even knowing the full details, that trauma and a set of traumatic responses had somehow transferred to Sarah. And all of that angst and guilt from her grandmother and the range of emotions experienced by her father had been passed down to her, leading her to feel in her blood 
that she didn't deserve to live. That was one of the forces, in addition to questions about his own family history and trauma, that began Dr. Wolin's journey into studying epigenetics. Epigenetics, a field established in the 1940s, is a study of heritable phenotype changes that do not involve alterations in the DNA sequence. Humans evolve from generation to generation to account for changing environmental conditions over the span of hundreds of years. We've gotten taller, heavier, and live for longer. But also in our DNA, we can inherit a set of other survival mechanisms and responses that are directly linked to the experiences of our ancestors. Or as Dr. Wolin phrases it, so when we have a trauma, when we, we experience trauma, it changes us. Literally, it causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this can affect the way our genes function, sometimes for generations. So when we go to have kids, to use a computer analogy, they, they don't always come equipped with a clean hard drive. There's an operating system already in place, one that contains the fallout from our traumas, our parents' traumas, even our grandparents' traumas. And our kids can be born with fears, feelings, sometimes even symptoms that don't belong to them. Just like the Usher family in Edgar Allan Poe's story, The House of the Fall of Usher, we can transmit trauma and mental disorders down from family member to family member in the same way that we do other physical and genetic ailments. According to some researchers, children begin to form explicit memories around the two-year mark but the majority are still implicit memories until they reach around seven years old. My father's mother, Lorraine, would have been about three years old when the great Mississippi flood ripped through her hometown of Minner City, leaving over 325,000 people, disproportionately Black and poor, displaced. Black men and boys were forced to work for months in the storms and ensuing flood to try to protect white-owned land. Any people caught attempting to find shelter would either be locked in barns and cotton gin houses until they went back to work or driven back into the waters at gunpoint. According to then-published reports in the Chicago Defender, quote, those who die are cut open, filled with sand, then tossed into the Mississippi River, end quote. Their bodies were used as human levees. My grandmother would have been nine years old when Richard Roscoe, a tenant farmer and deacon over a local Black Baptist church, was lynched, hunted down by a mob after a disagreement with a wealthy white plantation owner. One of her earliest memories might have been seeing Deacon Roscoe's dead body dragged through the streets of Minner City, tied to the back of the town sheriff's car. A warning to all the Black folks not to get too uppity. Dreaming wasn't allowed in those parts. Did our family ever own any land? That was the question I asked my father as we were sitting in the waiting room of the hospital. He didn't want to be there. He had been there all day, and the hospital had no room to check him in. It was 2020 after all. He had been there for so long that me, my mom, and my oldest sister had to take shifts, waiting for him as early morning turned to night. I was trying to keep him distracted any way that I could, so I pushed him. For more of our family's story, I was starting to find strands of a story of our family, specifically his mother's family. 
I wanted to know if he knew the story that I was learning. No, he said. We never owned anything before my generation. After his death, I confirmed what I was already beginning to learn, that this was not true. In fact, my great-great-grandparents on my father's side had owned a hundred acres of land outright in the years following the Civil War. On that land, they had built a school and a church. In addition to being a farmer, my great-great-grandfather had also been a pastor. For at least two generations, they successfully built a way of life in Atala County, Mississippi, an independent life that was geographically close, but worlds away from the plantation where my great-great-grandparents had met. My father never knew this. My grandmother never knew it, or at least she never talked about it. I learned it because the white descendants of the family that owned mine published a book called Entwined, which were stories of the lineages of the enslavers and the enslaved within my family. Apparently, my cousin Tina, who was the family historian, had been piecing all this together when she died unexpectedly in 2020. She was planning to write our family's story in our voice. As I understand it, under the pretense of exchanging information, the descendant of the family that owned mine got information from Tina. Without her knowledge or consent, that woman took that information and used it to tell our family history through her own distorted lens. Under her narration, relationships were good in the community between the families. She speculated that maybe her family had helped mine, the implication being that there was no way that this Black family would otherwise have been smart, savvy, or hardworking enough to achieve land ownership on their own. Somehow, between 1876, when my great-great-grandparents purchased the land, and when my grandmother was born, something happened. We don't know what happened. But the land never made it down the direct line of descendants. Somehow, the property ended up in the hands of a local white family who had a business monopoly in the area. But here's something I did learn about what was happening in that region in the same time period. In the late 1880s, the Southern Farmers Alliance, a white populist movement in the region organizing for labor and land rights, had been one of the major agricultural organizations. Because they had barred Black people from membership, Black farmers had organized the Colored Farmers Alliance and Cooperative Union. Though there were some Black landowners in and around the South, the overwhelming number were sharecroppers or field hands for white planters. In September 1889, Major American newspapers claimed that hundreds of Black people were fighting against white people in Minner City and there was a potential race war brewing. White lawmakers and officials in the area rushed to say there had been some troublesome Blacks that had to be arrested. And if you're side-eyeing that story right now, you definitely should be. Contemporary Black newspapers described the incident as less of a race riot with rebellious Negroes that had to be calmed down, and more of an all-out massacre. Up to 100 Black people were reported to have been killed or disappeared. One person reported that he watched as a 16-year-old white boy, quote, beat the brains out of a little colored girl, while a bigger brother with a gun kept the little one's parents off, end quote. And the reason for the massacre was those efforts by the Black farmers to organize for autonomy. 
the white populist farmers and law enforcement in the area didn't like that uppity shit. Several sources reported that those white farmers targeted well-known leaders of the Colored Alliance. They were shot and killed. According to contemporary reports, one person received a letter from a friend in Mississippi telling them that after the troops left Minner City, the posse hung some of the prisoners. Ultimately, everything was covered up. An actual number of names of all the people killed remain unaccounted for. Needless to say, the message was heard loud and clear, and the Black Farmer Populist Alliance would be short-lived. As I was writing this book, after my dad was gone, I asked my mom if she knew anything about what could have happened. And this is what she told me. Our family didn't know anything about owning any land. My grandmother didn't talk about her childhood a lot, only later in life. But she mentioned that when she was a baby or a little girl, her father got into an altercation with a white man. He shot at the man. He didn't kill him, but he knew that the man would be back. My grandmother's mother had died giving childbirth to my grandmother's younger brother. So her father was the only parent in the house. He told her older siblings that he had to go, and he just took off. The children had nothing, not even milk. So they kept the youngest children, including my grandma, alive by giving them flour mixed with water. She said she remembered one time a group of white men came around looking for her dad. The older kids hid her under the stairs of the house. They told her not to make a sound, not one peep. The men came in and ransacked the house, looking for her daddy. They said when they found that quote-unquote nigger, he was going to hang. The family never saw her daddy again. They don't know what happened to him. When my grandma was 13, she was married off to my grandfather, who was 12 or more years her senior. So we don't know if at that point in time the land my grandmother lived on was the same land that my family owned. But we also know that she and many of her siblings didn't learn to read until they were adults. So they could have signed anything and they wouldn't know the difference. My grandmother would always say she didn't like to talk about her childhood and that it brought too many memories back. Bad memories. But my mom reminded me that when grandma got older and she developed dementia, she would sit in the house with a blanket over her lap. For a while, she had a gun under her chair until it became too risky to leave it with her, and my dad took it away. She would sit very still, staring out of the window, looking into the darkness. She would say, Be quiet. The white men are out there. They're coming for us. When my mom told me that story, my blood went cold. I felt numb. All I could think about were the times I used to laugh at my dad. I saw him often at our house. He too would sit in the dark on the couch, looking out of the window. He watched every car that drove past. He would never say a word. I would tease him that he was being paranoid. Our neighborhood was safe, a gated community. And he would look over at me and he'd smile and he'd say, Better to be paranoid than sorry. Every day in a life, there are things and experiences that profoundly shape and change who we are and how we move through space and time. Or as author Octavia Butler puts it, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. But there are things that can't change because they're so deeply rooted in society 
and in us, rotting from the inside out. They're the dead who walk among us, begging to be seen. Their ghosts can be felt. Signs of their life are everywhere, but we cannot fully see them because so many have sought to erase their story. They were silenced. Their bodies were buried in the walls. And until we unearth, acknowledge, and remedy those transgressions, past and present, like the House of Usher, we are all doomed to fall. <laughs>